This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come today to this place to worship you, to set our eyes upon you, to turn our ears towards you. And so we ask, Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that it is that you have for us from your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A couple of months ago, uh, Jess came home from a thrift store with this lovely mug that she bought for me. I love, I love a good mug. And so it's the mug I've been choosing to drink coffee from uh, pretty much every morning now. It's partly because it's just got a nice look, it's got a nice feel, but it's mostly because of the message that's on the front of it, which I'm sure you can't read from there, but it says, nobody's perfect. I, uh, I, you know, world's best dad is normal, number one dad, those kind of things, but nobody's perfect works too. Um, <laughs> you know, in honesty though, it was an amazing gift. Jess knows that I can be uh, hard on myself, that I struggle with perfectionism. She knows that too often uh, I fall into these lies that if there is a problem in my life, somehow it must be my fault. I should have seen this coming. If I had only done more, if I hadn't missed that detail. And so this imperfect mug with its chips along the rim and uh, its funny message across the front is actually a daily grace. It's a gift, it's a reminder for me that helps unravel some of those lies that haunt me. It moves me into trusting the Lord with every part of myself, even in my imperfections. And I know that I'm not alone in this struggle. Not the struggle of perfectionism, but in believing and in hearing lies that seek to define us, and then they confine us. The thoughts that tell us, this is who you are. This is who you are. These kinds of thoughts, they shape how we see ourselves, what we expect from ourselves, how we interpret the world around us, in other words, what we believe to be our identity, it will impact how we view ourselves, how we make sense of the world and all that life throws at us. Who are we? Are we good people? Or are we all just sinners who should expect to be hurt and to hurt others all the time? What roles does redemption play, does Christ play in our identity, in who we are? It's these types of questions that we ought to ask, and these are the types of questions I believe Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 6. So that's where we're going to be this morning, but as is normal for Paul, if you jump into anywhere, especially in Romans, he's, you're usually jumping into the middle of an argument, right? You're starting, like for us, verse 1 says, What then are we to say about what? 
So we need to rewind a little bit. So if you would like to follow along, go ahead and grab the Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to actually rewind four verses to Romans 5, beginning in verse 18. It's on page 917 if you want a little, little help. Beginning in verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18, we read this. Therefore, just as one man's trespass has led to condemnation for all. He's speaking of Adam, right? Adam in the garden, Adam and Eve. So one man's act of righteousness, speaking of Jesus, leads to justification and life for all. For just as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In other words, through Adam's sin, we all have sinned. Scripture teaches us that Adam's sin, um, both, sorry, Adam's sin has both uh, led his descendants to become bent against him, or bent, sorry, <laughs> nobody's perfect, right? <laughs> Let's try this again. In Adam's sin, both Adam and all of his descendants became bent towards sin. This is why we so often want what we shouldn't want. Somehow, as our representative, the representative of all of humanity, Adam and Eve, in their sin, both introduced sin into the world, and they introduced the desire for sin into each and every one of us. Through his disobedience, the many were made sinners. Yet in Christ, in Christ's obedience, Christ who was born a son of Adam, born into our broken humanity, Christ who was tempted but never disobeyed his heavenly Father. In his obedience, the many will be made righteous. And how? How is it that we will be made righteous? Well, hang on to that question. We're going to get to that in a moment. Looking back into chapter 5, verse 20 now. But the law came in, right? The law is given to the Jewish people from God, with the result that trespasses multiplied. In other words, when God showed his people, God who is all-loving, all-knowing, who cares for us, when he showed us how he wanted us to live our lives, our sinful hearts desired the opposite of that. And so he continues on. But where sin, or sorry, with the result that the trespasses multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through the justification leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What Paul is saying is, the more humanity proved itself to be against God, the more God proved himself to be for us. The more wicked we showed ourselves to be, the more gracious he showed himself to be. Which begs the question at the beginning of our text, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? Or put differently and a bit more convictingly, if the more sin just evokes more grace, well, doesn't it mean I can just keep doing what I want to do? Paul's answer, by no means. 
How can we who have died to sin go on living in it? And to explain what he means, Paul turns to our baptism. He writes in our scripture for this morning, starting in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ who was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For, and this is really crucial, for if we have been united with him, in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. As you and I consider our identity as followers of Christ, we ought to first look to our baptism. Because just as when Jesus was baptized and the heavens parted and the Father declared his identity over him, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, So too, in our baptism, we hear and we experience the Lord's declaration of who we are. We are his beloved. We are those who have died and been buried with Christ. We are those who walk in the newness of resurrection life. And this is true of us because we are those who are united gloriously and mysteriously with Jesus. What is true of him is true of all of us who put our faith and our trust in him. We are beloved because he is beloved. We are made righteous, as our psalm reminded us, because he is the righteous one and the just one whose whose righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne. We are called children of God because he is the son of God. All that is true of him is now true of us. This is what it means to be a baptized follower of Christ. This is who we are. We used to be defined, Paul says, by our body of sin, which isn't to say that our bodies are sinful. Paul, I think, is juxtaposing, contrasting our new selves with our former selves aligned with our forefather, Adam. What he is saying is that us, that old us is dead And so we might still be tempted by sin. We will certainly still fail and fall into sin. But to do so is not who we are. It actually goes against the grain of who we now are in Christ. It goes against the very grace of God that has been given to us. We are those who have been ushered into a new humanity. We are those set free from sin filled with the Spirit, and empowered to live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In other words, we are free and empowered to live as Christ lived. This is why Paul goes on to conclude in verse 11 and on. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. 
For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? He asks again. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. By no means. And here's where I think Paul and Paul's view of our identity ought to and probably will challenge us this morning. Two ways. First, Paul is challenging our understanding of grace. He's doing this by confronting an idea called antinomianism. Now, some of you might be tracking with me and others are confused. That's fine. We're going to explain it, right? Antinomianism is just the belief that in Christ we have been set free from all constraints. In other words, because grace will abound, we can do whatever we want, right? This is what Paul is confronting. And now we might scoff at this. We might say, okay, obviously nobody thinks that, right? And yet, as pastor and writer John Stott points out, while we recognize antinomianism in others, we must not be allowed to conceal its ugly presence in ourselves. Have we never caught ourselves making light of our failures on the ground that God will excuse and forgive them? What sins are we justifying or making little of in our lives? Are we putting our security in things like money and power and connections instead of fighting those urges and instead trusting God with all of who we are? What about gossip? Are we talking about people behind their backs in ways that does not honor them, that we would never say to their face? Are we growing petty and bitter towards people in our lives? Are we holding on to grudges, unwilling to forgive, unwilling to offer grace? Having served in the past as a youth minister and preparing to start my new job here at Ascension as a youth minister, I'm reminded of something that we used to talk about as a, as a youth ministry team in my last job, which is that we adults really like to think ourselves as morally superior, morally evolved from these immature teenagers. We like to accuse them of all the silly things that they do. And yet we do the same things. It just looks a little more grown up. We are petty. We gossip. We say things that we should not. We make impulsive, self-centered decisions. Or as Father Kevin reminded us last week, we too get sad and then mad and then bad, right? As the mug reminds us, nobody is perfect. But there is a difference between admitting that we are imperfect and moving from admitting that to moving into justifying our imperfections, to making light of them. Paul says in Romans 2, chapter, or verse 4, do you not realize that God's, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so I ask, what sins have we made little of that we ought to repent of? What behaviors have we justified for which we ought to have apologized? He's challenging our view of grace. And second... Paul is challenging our view of ourselves. Growing up, I used to hear people in my uh, Christian circle would say this all the time. They'd say, 
I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Now, there's definitely truth to that, right? If what we mean by that is that we're all dead in our sins, and apart from Christ and what he has done for us, apart from his power working in us, we are powerless over our sin, well then, yes, amen. But if what we mean by that is, well, expect me to go on sinning because this is who I am. You can't teach an old sinful dog new tricks. If that's what we're saying, then Paul has a real problem with us and with our view of ourselves. To say such a thing is to give sin a power over us that it no longer has, sisters and brothers. Yes, we are still profoundly sinful people, but that is not the core of who we are. We are those who have died to sin and are alive in Christ. I found this to be particularly convicting this past week. You see, I grew up in a church tradition that emphasized sin and taking our sin very seriously to the point that if you asked 17-year-old me what sins I was struggling with on any random day, I could have actually probably pulled a list out of my pocket. Um, My shortcomings, my sins, they became my identity. They became who I was. The more I have grown, the more I have realized that my identity is first and foremost in Christ. In being fully accepted and loved by him, everything has changed. I am not my sin. That is not who I am, and that is not who I am destined to become. I have to remind myself of this every day. Because every day I come up against my sinful desires, my sinful inclinations, my sinful behaviors. And I have to remember that they are both serious and that there is freedom to be found from them. As Kevin preached last week, I was reminded of a perfect example from my own life, which was my own relationship towards anger. If you didn't have a chance to listen to Father Kevin's sermon last week, I would highly recommend it. Because he talks about our anger and how so often we stuff our anger down until it explodes or we vent it out in inappropriate ways. And I'm not going to lie, I'm great at both of those two things. I've done both throughout my life and some of these unhealthy patterns have followed me into marriage. They've followed me into being a parent. And it would be so easy for me to hear the lies of antinomianism, of this kind of grace, to make little of my sins, to make little of my struggles, and to say things like, every dad gets annoyed with his kids. Every married couple fights. Grace will abound. Or, to go the opposite direction, and to feel crushed by my sin. To be crushed by my shortcoming. If I was just a good dad, I would never have yelled like that. If I was just a good husband, I never would have said that. That was a low blow. I'm a terrible person. And yet Paul is challenging both of these responses. Is my unrighteous anger a serious thing that I should repent of to God and that I should apologize for for anyone that I hurt? Absolutely. And am I defined and am I confined by my anger, powerless to repent and find greater degrees of healing? Absolutely not. Who am I? I am united with Christ. I am raised to the newness of life. 
And that newness will certainly require God working in my life through prayer, through repentance, through brothers and sisters who can talk with me about my sin, who can model for me a more Christ-like way, and who can remind me of the hope that is mine in Jesus. In other words, it's, it's going to take work, but we are not hopeless, for the work that we do is empowered by the very Spirit of God who is in us. God has not forgiven us and left us to wallow. No, we have died with him and been raised with him to the newness of life, a life better than that, sorry, a life better than that which our sin can promise, a life better than we could even hope or imagine. And so glory to him whose power working in us can do all of this. Amen.